Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 337 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Dax Jin and Adam Doherty of What Boy Games about their tactical RPG deck building game, Trials of Fire. I first saw this game at Res 2018, I think it was. Time kind of blur, but it's definitely in the before times when there were such events. Although, when you're listening to this, maybe it's the after times when we've gone back to the... I don't know, just whatever. It was an extraordinary game. It really drew my attention because I love card games and tabletop games. And this kind of meshes the two other genres, which is video games, that's also love. So it's like a match made in heaven for me. And it's just really, really well designed and beautifully put together tactical RPG game with the use of cards. Now, those of you from the computer game show may go, oh no, no, this is not something that can be be allowed. I mean, James Farley would lose his mind. But no, no, it's fine. But he would. Not for him. And not all games are for everyone. But this one, yeah, Trials of Fires, it's a, it's a corker. Really, really enjoyed talking to Dax and Adam about this extraordinary game. So, um, should we listen to me from about six or seven weeks ago, chatting to Dax and Adam? Chris, take it away. Dax and Adam. Hi. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? (laughs) Uh, We are um, the two sort of full-time and founding members of What Boy Games. Um, For my part, I'm Dax, and I'm the studio director. And I'm Adam. I'm the game director. 
Um, so I'm kind of um, in charge of everything that goes into the game. I do the design and the coding uh, and kind of putting everything together. And then anything that isn't on Adam's plate tends to fall onto my plate, which is um, business development, localization, marketing, community, PR, legal, anything that's sort of involved in running the company of you know that is the studio we i mean we collaborate and consult on those sorts of things together um but as you can imagine doing all the design and all the coding takes up a hell of a lot of adam's time so i do all of the stuff that um needs doing to keep the studio kind of moving forward yeah afloat so to speak all those words <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. you know some developers will go all that ancillary stuff. I'm like, sorry, it's it's. I know you love that word, but it really isn't because it's the other. It's, it's either that or you end up standing outside Sainsbury's selling copies of the <laughs> issue. Not that there's anything technically wrong. Well, you know what I mean. It's you want no. to make sure everything. It's all. It all has an importance. Everyone, every piece of the puzzle if you will, has an impact. I thought you were suggesting we could sell copies of the game outside Sainsbury's. You should probably do that. How have we missed that? <laughs> Stand out there with a bunch of keys. What was I thinking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. That would totally work. No, it wouldn't. <laughs> so, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in order of Dax, Adam, Dax, Adam, because I've got that in my, in my notes. It could be the other way. But anyway, okay. how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Oh, Adam, you've been doing it a lot longer than me. Why don't you go for that one? Have I? I think so. Okay. All right, well, I started, um, yeah, um, God knows, about 20 years ago now, 21 years ago. Um, it was my, my first job at university. Um, so kind of growing up, I've always been always been super interested in, in video games, sort of design, um, and... Um, I went to university, did a maths degree, um, and then realized I wasn't really qualified for anything. Um, and from there, I kind of, when I came out of university, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to, to go into games. So I kind of applied for a few jobs and then realized that none of them looked very interesting. Um, and then really decided at that point that I would focus on games. So again, I, I spoke to a couple of people, um, didn't get hired, mainly because I had no useful skills. Um, didn't know how to code, didn't know how to design, that kind of stuff. Um, so what I did is I, I kind of went away for two weeks, taught myself C++, um, made a demo, and applied around for a few companies. Um, got my first job at a, a small sort of DLC, downloadable games company in Guildford, um, who were kind of sort of big into d d downloadable games before they became um, before they came massive. So that was a great place to start, a very small company, um, a lot of experienced people there. So X Criterion, I think, was what they were made up of. Uh, yeah, and, and so from there, I kind of um, moved on to Sony for a few years. Um, and then eventually, well, not eventually, um, before that, on to Rocksteady Studios, um, just as they were starting on the Batman series of games. Right, yeah, they they didn't do very well, did they? <laughs> did all right. I mean, it's just a terrible like superhero games that just don't sell at all, do they? It's awful. No, that didn't that didn't you know change the the nature of melee combat games? No, absolutely not. No, 
No, although you could. Yeah, it, was, it was. It was. It was. It was really. I mean, it was. It was like one of those um, sort of amazing um, sort of timing coincidences. I kind of started on the on the very first day when they announced the the Batman project. Um, um, so yeah, it was, I was there from literally from day one, um, and they kind of said they were sort of shopping around. What, what does everyone want to do? And I, I sort of said, oh, well, I'll, I'll do Batman if no one else wants to do it. So. And I kind of lucked into sort of being the, the the player programmer. Did all the sort of Batman stuff for the original game and the sequels. Was it? I'm gonna to have to ask this. Um, was it ever influenced by the Mark of Cree, which is a PS2 what, the combat game? system? Mm. I don't even know what that is. I'm afraid. No, so oh, yeah, that's no. fine. You'd sort of swivel the right stick and, and yeah. pick a target, and then the your target. attack would sort of be preloaded, wasn't it? It would. Yeah. Yeah. There's some. Um, I never heard any conversations of Mark of Cree sort of references in the studio. No, no, it definitely wasn't. And so I've not heard of it. No, um, no I just had to ask the question because it's like it's been debated internally within Kane and Rince because we did an episode about the Mark of Cree because it's an important game. It's not a yeah. great mm. game. Please stress that because when you play it back now, it's like it doesn't really hold up that great but it's like 20 years old now but it's still good you know it's one of those it's like this is interesting it's good and, and they were doing the of... whole sort of eagle century thing before assassin's creed right they were yeah yeah looking yeah. out and so that was all there but they, then it kind of fell apart because they added zombies at the last level just... <laughs> stop what? doing that what I never just, got to that bit. Just don't. Why? Why? Sounds like, sounds like I missed out on something influential. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, when they did what I call thief syndrome. Thief was great until they threw in the undead. Like, can't creep past the undead. You just need to kill them. <laughs> no, I'm here to creep around. Just rubbish. Anyway, so a lot of people sort of cite, you know, that kind of dynamic sort of combat system. But you're right. It was more like, hang on, let me just choose what, how I'm going to punch this in the face. Right, there you go. Now I'm just going to let it go and, and, a, and a script would kick in. I get that. But uh, anyway, great beginnings, great starts. And that's that's really good. I mean, it's all fascinating you spent two weeks solid figuring out how a very complex language that is, a very powerful language that is C++. Uh, mm. So that's quite quite an impressive feat. I mean, you must have sort of just locked yourself in. Like, I will figure this out. Yeah, that... kind of. I said it was kind of it was a bit of a rude awakening when I realised that they actually expected you to be able to do some of this stuff. Right. Um, I think one thing about uh, the games industry is it's not like. Um, I mean, it's, it's different now, obviously, but this was mm. twenty years ago. They don't have kind of a lot of um, sort of apprenticeships and sort of ways in from the ground up to train you up. Um, so you kind of had to kind of come in with a skill. Um, and, and ready to go. That was my experience anyway back then. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But having that demo and a portfolio of work is still very, very, very required and powerful now. But even back then, it was probably even better. I mean, that's how that's how Worms came to be after all. Look, I made this weird little version of Scorched Earth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I'm showing my age there. But anyway... <laughs> um, Next question, and this one's quite nebulous, um, and I make no apologies for that because um, it's an important question to ask creators, for you are that. What do you believe are your biggest influences? You can answer that as a collective, as a, as a studio of what boy games, or as individually. But what do you think is, your, is the thing that you keep on being or, orbiting, whether you like it or not? 
Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me think. Um I mean, I mean kind of the um a lot of the games that really kind of got me into the hardcore gaming were I mean I was kind of I grew up with a, a PC in the house not a console so were um kind of the the, the later Ultima games sort of like um Ultima 7 Ultima Underworld and kind of that it was first kind of ga- first games in my experience that made you kind of feel like you were in in another world. It wasn't just kind of you were playing through a series of levels, um, but really kind of made you feel like you were you were part of something that that wasn't just there just just for the player. Um, even though I'm sure the behind the scenes they were, they kind of gave that great illusion of, of kind of having much more outside of what you were experiencing. Um, and I think that's kind of. Kind of the the thing that I always I'd say that really sort of drove me into sort of seeing games as kind of a something you could you could sink your life into um, and and going forward um, sort of a lot of similar kind of games that that really influenced me uh, were ones that kind of really really kind of gave you that that feeling of of being sort of part of something like, like Half Life, System Shock. Um, even going further, sort of um, Halo, Mass Effect, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I can can see it now. So you love the concept of world building, and then not only world building, but building a world that's interesting and one you'd want to be uh, part of and be have a. I'm not sure it's always one you'd want to be in because some no, of them are pretty nasty, pretty horrible. <laughs> but you know you can detach yourself, so you've got that security. Yeah. So you're quite right, you know. Who wants to be in Ravenholm? No one wants to be in Ravenholm. Oh, but you've got to go. We don't go there, it, haven't you? We don't. No one. No one goes there. And yeah. uh, for me, for me, my personal game of last year was Alex Half Life, which was amazing. Uh, the fact that you've got to actually reload your gun was really cool, <laughs> rather than just press a button. You actually got to okay, just pull the magazine out. And just, <laughs> you know, and it added to the to, to the atmosphere, the, the the concept that you actually yeah, you really are in City Seventeen. You really you really are. Oh, wow. Yeah. But uh, that's a wonderful thing to to, and I I, I that's one of the reasons I've always loved um, uh, fiction or science fiction or fantasy is to, to see what other worlds people have created and then mm. see what those are like and then judge them to be and try to see how fragile or not they are. Some are better than others, absolutely. And some actually go spiralling off into places that no one really knows or cares about, like Dune, for example. Um, <laughs> my literal regret is reading all the Dune books. Why did I do that? <laughs> Why did I do yeah, that? I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a weird... Um... It's a weird inspiration for me because, um, mm. kind of, if you if you know me, if you kind of know my kind of skill sets and, and what I kind of focus on, I mean, you can kind of see it in Trials of Fire. It, it is all about the kind of the mechanics, the polish, the gameplay, um, and but kind of, but but I still sort of what I what I what I really always aspire to do is kind of really keep the the idea that the the gameplay sort of drives the world rather than them just being two completely separate things. Like a lot of the world of Trials of Fire was driven about by the mechanics, like we wanted to make stuff scarce and we would have lots of different um, types of enemies, that kind of stuff. So really kind of merging the two sort of the world and the gameplay, I think, is is something that, that really works to make you feel like the the world hasn't been designed around you. 
uh, even though it has, uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, there's um, there's been like one of the things that there's a relevance to this one I'm about to say, but MOBAs. The thing about mm. MOBAs is you're not the centre of the universe, which does somewhat jar with many people. Like, wait, aren't I the most important person on the screen? No. See the little thing crawling next to you? It's that. That's way more important than you will ever be. And that concept of, you know, uh, that's quite extreme. Uh, whereas what you've done here, you're right, is there some has to be some symbiosis between the world and how the players interact with that world. And that's quite hard to actually balance because sometimes it, you don't get that right. And many developers do focus on one versus the other. And some of them may be doing that intentionally. You could argue that Firewatch is a game that does do that. It does actually say, well, you're just a, uh, you know, you're, you're along for the ride. And that's fine, uh, as long as everyone understands that to be the case. But, um, yeah. I yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I I lost I lost way too much of my life to uh, to Heroes of the Storm a, a few years ago, so so I can understand the MOBA comment too all too well. That's mm-hmm. it's one of the appeals of it, in my humble opinion, is the fact that oh, all right, so it's not just me in the mid channel then. <laughs> no, there's uh, there's maybe someone else with you, or the others pushing up to the north or upper. It's fine. But um, no, that's why I think one of those games, those games were so successful. That's why Dota was that's how it came to be, because it just expanded out from a hero concept in an RTS, which no one had done before. And we said, well, how far can we push this? That's how far they can push it. So no, it's just, yeah, I think I think that kind of, um, I mean, it's kind of it's, it's obvious to say it now because obviously the game's done so well. But um, that kind of combination of the team play of like a of a counter strike but with bringing the camera up so you kind of you have a, a constant awareness of the battlefield and what everyone else is doing i think was kind of the the secret behind that mm, mm. and there is a relevance to what we're talking about now is this you know this idea of uh, world influence and world creation and then how the players interact with that world because they can in other mediums there's very little interaction we know that there's a different way to communicate with the reader or the viewer or what have you but in video games we have that added layer which can be of uh, we can be ingredients of quite a lot to not a lot at all but at least you have something and that's something we've been exploiting over the last 20 30 40 actually 50 years people don't like to admit that but it's true it's been going that long so, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think of, I was thinking twenty years ago. It was just yesterday, though. So probably... yeah, if you, if you include Space War from nineteen seventy one, it's about fifty years. So oh god, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing a statistic once that, like, um, if you're if you're a game developer, statistically you'll live forever because, like, less than less than fifty percent of game developers ever have died. But that's probably not true anymore. <laughs> no. No, that's definitely not true. Um, sadly, yeah. we've <clears throat> had some casualties recently over the last two or three yeah. years. So, um, which is, you know, that's how life goes. I'm afraid, very sad. But my next question to you both, and this will be an individual question, I suspect, because everyone has their own take on things. What do you? Sorry, what developer do you most admire in the in the industry, and why? What, individual developer or um, a person studio? or a studio, either works. Just basically the group of people, a person. You look, point at, and go, "You there? Carry on doing the things you're doing. They're very good." 
For me, I mean, I grew up in Australia and I came over to the UK in 98. So my original plan was to to work as a lawyer. I finished my law degree in, in Australia, then came to work for a law firm in, in London and got about six months into it and realized this is a terrible, terrible career decision. And so um, got a job working for Sony Cygnosis in QA uh, when they were based in Camden there. But the thing that really blew my mind about games and having the opportunity to actually work in a game studio, because at that time, you know, end of the 90s, there wasn't that much development going on in Australia. So I'd sort of grown up as a gamer, but always thought that games just sort of magically appeared in Tokyo or San Francisco or LA or Guildford or something because I wasn't ever really surrounded or, or had the opportunity to meet people who, who actually made them. So um, Crash Bandicoot was the very first PlayStation 1 game that I bought. Well, I bought Resident Evil, Tomb Raider, and Crash Bandicoot with my console. And um, those three Cho- games... choices. Oh, yes, red sterling, hot choices, right? Sterling choices. I mean, the, the, well done. The, the launch lineup for the PS1 was incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I loved all three of those games, but there was something about Crash that really just drove me wild. So Mark Cerny and the work that he had done on Marble Madness and through Crash with um, with the Naughty Dog team, I think, like, Naughty Dog was, was one of those developers that I always really, really admired. But I think Mark Cerny, given how his career has taken him through... Um, design whether that's you know spiral or crash or jack and daxter and now where he is and and how sort of the epicentral role that he plays on the technology side at sony um you know if i was to say one person it would be mark cerny if i was to say a team it would be naughty dog they often get mentioned in this question uh, rightly so, because they do some extraordinary things or have done extraordinary things. Mm. I still haven't played Last of Us Part Two because I got distracted. I need to fix that, don't I? But uh, <laughs> I have a PS5 as well, so it looks even better. So uh, I'm one of the few. There are about three people. In the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the top-selling Sony console ever, apparently. Apparently, no one's got one. No one's which got makes one. no sense to me. <laughs> anyway, so they're all just in a warehouse, a scalpers' warehouse. Yeah, um, yeah. What about you, Adam? Yeah, for me, it's I don't know. It's it's I don't think there's any um, any one person who kind of jumps out as clearly. Um, I think I find it's kind of it. It's been a kind of different different teams over the years that are kind of have kind of popped up to the top, but I, I can't really think of any that have. Um, I know this sounds bad, um, but have, have kind of maintained that like like for example like we had like i said the uh, the earlier ultimate games done by the origin team they kind of i think they peaked very strongly um and then the kind of industry moved on um same stuff like like blizzard uh, again i mean i'm not saying they're not doing it phenomenally well these days but um Kind of the, there was now, a, isn't it i mean if you talk yeah about that's what i mean at theme. the time they were kind of just just smashing out these amazingly polished um experiences uh very creative as well mm. um valve as well had a, had like a five ten years of just like delivering amazing products and then they decided they didn't want to make games anymore um 
so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to think of, of as I, I kind of tend to jump around a bit, sort of moving with the different generations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can't actually think of anyone off the top of my head, any individual who, who jumps out at me, I'm afraid. I mean, what about a studio? Anyone particular? I mean, you've already mentioned Blizzard of old. Blizzard <laughs> Stuff like Blizzard, Bioware, Origin, that kind mm. of really sort of influential in the in the games That's I used to love. Um, yeah. I still love um I mean, there's lots of talk about, oh, look, they're doing KOTOR or oh, yeah, Knights of the Old Republic again. Like, how often does this rumour come up? <laughs> <Can> you... yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah, again, I, I kind of wish they were, they'd just do something new yeah. <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, I've played KOTOR, it was brilliant. I, I'm not yeah. sure I need to do it again. No, do um, really? Yeah, it's 20 years old now. Can we just, it's, yeah, it's, it was good. It was good back then, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, HK47 was hilarious. Meatbags. It's all funny. Yes, great stuff. But we move on. You know. Yeah, so I think I'm kind of. I'm not. I'm not really one for nostalgia. I, I like mm-hmm. to see like the new experiences. Like the. Um, that's great to see like um, Supermassive sort of winning loads of the Game of the Year awards last year with with a, a much smaller development team, sort of making sort of new experiences, new kinds of games, uh, like really sort of taking that roguelike genre and. Putting in a, a, like an awesome story on top of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Super giant, not super massive. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, super giant. <laughs> I, wonder who's I make that mistake though. all the time. Yeah. I, actually, uh, I actually went to. They've been on the show. They've been guests on the show. Mm. I'm happy to say twice now. And um, they were they were did a wonderful panel at PAX West last year um, about you know just because before Hades was uh, unleashed upon us all. And uh, and then realise what they what they they're capable what they're capable of doing is quite extraordinary. But yeah, um, yeah. good 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 shout on Supergiant again. Another developer is often cited at this point in the show. So last question of the first half. So you almost made it. Well done. Almost. <laughs> and this is why I have to ask because we're a podcast about video games. It's kind of by law that we have to then ask this question. What are you playing right now? I'm playing right now. Um, quite a lot of Trials of Fire. Um, of I know that might sound weird, but um, we're still sort of looking at balancing, um, tweaking, fixing bugs. People are sort of a lot of people. We've got a lot of new people in playing the game, giving their opinions, uh, giving their feedback, finding issues. So yeah, I know your Discord channel is awesome. It's so it's buzzing. Well done. It's hard to maintain those yeah. because uh, you've done a good job there. Um, very well organized and populated. Lots of pinned stuff. All the good stuff. It's people don't. Once you know how to use Discord, it becomes phenomenally powerful. But the trick is getting over that hurdle. But so outside, you... outside of my own game, Indeed, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm I still I'm actually uh, again still playing a, a bit of Hades on the Switch when I um, there you go yeah when I when I, when I'm sort of away from the computer. So um, I still haven't got that far in that game. It's kind of one of those games that I I love, but. Just don't don't really find the time, uh, and that, yeah, that's. Oh, and I dipped into dipped into the uh, the new Stellaris expansion. Oh right. Um, but I, I, yeah, I kind of felt like this is this is going to take a bit longer than I have right now. Yeah. So it's all like the little you're moving the little tiny little pieces. Like okay, I know what's going to happen. Yeah. But if I move that over just by an inch, it'll cause a massive cascade. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what basically what Stellaris is just moving little pieces everywhere no no oh, damn it where's it gone and off it goes and I just didn't mean to do that 
<laughs> but uh, in fact, Trolls of Fire suffers from a little bit of that. Not in a bad way. It's definitely like no, no. Oh, never mind. Okay, I'll have to. I have to. I'll live with it now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, what about you, Dax? What are you, what's uh, distracting you from your your things? Um, I um had a bit of a play dead sort of nostalgic hit. So I got inside and limbo mm. and um went back to them and they're right. just they're just as good. Yeah. Um so um got through both of them recently and also um uh Shipbreaker, Hard Space Shipbreaker. Oh, yes, which they've been is... on the show too. Wonderful. Wonderful. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Lucky I haven't I thought it's one of those games that I've just I've really wanted to get into, but it's it uh, again this sounds <laughs> I'm gonna say it sounds terrible, but the, the premise sounds so boring. But everyone loves it. Yeah, it's um, a dark comedy. Think, that's I why. think the premise sounds amazing. Yeah. Like just okay, the idea fine. of doing quite mundane stuff in a really dangerous environment. That's really, awesome. Really, really, really dangerous. Like, just cut off that panel. I'm oh, sorry. What did you say? <laughs> just cut off that panel. What the one right next to the reactor? Okay. Oh, I, did, I didn't even then. realize it was, it was it was dangerous. I thought it was literally just just no. You scrap can, in the ship again. You know, the cascade event things. That that game is just yeah. cascade event after cascade. You can you can depressurize the the if you don't depressurize the cabins before dismantling the spaceships, you can actually get knocked out by the exploding door as you rip it off. Amazing. It's brilliant. It's all about physics. Brilliant physics. It sounds dry. You're right. You describe it like this. This no. But then it's painted, and they have this world where, a uh, little bit political here, but the capitalism is completely rife to the point where mm. one's own, there's no value to you as a person at all. It's All that matters mm. is is the, the, the money you accrue. And you actually start off life indebted to the, a corporation. It's quite, it's very dark. And yeah. you are actually working to pay off a debt that you were born with. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's pretty it's pretty grim stuff. But, um, but in terms of like, like that world building piece, mm, you know, that we we're yeah. talking about, it it's, yeah. it just underscores how much work you need to put in as a developer to sell that. You know, to sell a, a world that um, as a player you buy into almost you know immediately. Yeah. And right from the off, that the, that whole experience of even just starting the game just places you in that sort of oppressed. Um, you know, capitalist environment where you do feel like the weight of the system on your shoulders, as well as this really shitty job you've got to do. Great, yeah. which really could kill you. Yes, <laughs> and what and what's shocking is that even after you die, you still get resurrected again, for at a cost to carry <laughs> on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, always, I, it was yeah. it was always the sort of. The the Wayland Utani sort of subtext in the Alien yeah. movies that yeah. that this this faceless company did not give a toss about its employees. No. But they never really went there with really exploring that. I'm sure there's sort of no. They just hinted other... it by like saying, you know, yeah. like, I work for the company, but don't worry, I'm an okay guy. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, Burke was a monster. But anyway, worse mm. than the actual Alien itself. Um, but well, he, was, he never ate anyone's face. See them screwing each other over for a percentage. <laughs> Thirty years. Thirty years. Anyway, that film. No, uh, <laughs> no I had. I had um, again, this is just going to show my age, but I had a, a shocking realization that that Robin Hood and and that song. Yeah. That number one run is now thirty years old. Thirty years old. The Brian Adams song. Brian Adams yeah. song. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Best not think about it. 
Exactly. I don't know why I brought that up. Just for, I'm going uh, to put that on right now. That's <laughs> amazing. Please don't. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's the end of the first half. Let us move on to the second half of the show where we delve deep into Trials of Fire. So, first question isn't a question, it's a request. We can't talk about Trials of Fire until we know what it is. So, gentlemen, in your own words, best of luck with this, because I'm sure you've done it many hundreds of times, but anyway, what is Trials of Fire? <laughs> this one always tends to land in my lap, like, give us the rapid fire, you no, know, for slick, fire. slick yeah. uh, <laughs> ele- elevator pitch. Um, and I've always... You know, when you're when you're pitching a Batman game, it's kind of easy because you just start with your Batman. You're punching him um, in the face as Batman. Yeah. Why are we still talking? <laughs> <laughs> Trials of Fire is is such. You know, the idea of it is is has got so many layers to it. Mm. So you know, fundamentally, it is a tactical deck building adventure game. Um, and it's been really fascinating, sort of reading the reviews since the game came out. That the way that other people see it, the way that the journalists and gamers, you know, how do they describe it? How do they categorize it? Because when they're writing a review, they sort of have to do that in the first paragraph. And, um, you know, they they tend to lean into this idea that it's sort of three games all mashed together and melded into one. So the, um, you know, the adventure game aspect of it is something that Adam and I have sort of talked about a lot um, and the influence and inspiration from Choose Your Own Adventure and Fighting Fantasy games that 
funny fantasy book, sorry, that we both read mm. when we were we were young. But there's a lot of branching narrative and, and world building um, that draws heavily from those inspirations. Um, the turn-based combat, um, which is sort of the core of the game. You know, there's you spend your time doing lots of different things, but you spend most of your time in battle. Um, and then the the deck building component to it, which um, is about finding equipment on your adventures through the world of Ash, whether you're gaining rewards of new equipment um, from a battle or you're trading or buying new items or equipment or weapons at, at stores or um, getting them in other ways. So the equipment that you then equip on your three party members then defines the decks that each that each of them carry so the, that linkage between kind of loot and deck building and then what you're going into each battle um having access to in terms of the three decks um there's just a really lovely fusion between those two systems um so yeah it's a lot more complicated complex than saying be the batman yeah. but that that's been the, the learning since we launched the game what almost three weeks ago that um it's kind of difficult to sum it up in 15 words or less because it's kind of three games all working together in in parallel and um yeah i mean that's one, to its credit really in my hub yeah i mean it's just, well know, i hope so you know i hope it doesn't yeah. sort of strike people as like oh my god this is really overwhelming hopefully they you know you sort of you're, you're shifting between those three lanes yeah, and each one of them is compelling for their own reasons. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the kind of the one of the core um, core ideas behind the game um, was to kind of make sure that there's no kind of uh, there's no automatic decisions. Um, so that was kind of where we we came on the sort of deck building combat um, is like so when you when you're in battle you don't have kind of set sort of ability rotations you run through. Um, when you when you get new loot, it's not like you just pick the one with the better numbers. You've got to kind of, at every stage, uh, making sure those decisions are are interesting. So it's not like you're just grinding up uh, better gear. You're actually thinking about how that kind of works with everything else. You're not just running through a stra set strategy in combat. You're kind of reacting to every turn to what the enemy does, to what what options you have. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of one of the the core um, core core ideas behind the game was to really get that yeah take that kind of uh sort of rpg just crush it down into a sort of two three hour experience and, and kind of make all the experience all the decisions really uh really meaningful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely it's every and that's quite well signposted um um throughout trials of fire and um we're gonna ask you the question about the first as the first point you sort of raised about the deck building no, I must confess I'm quite well versed in deck builders. I played Dominion from way back and mm -hmm. uh, Ascension, and then you've got um, Clank, which is the more recent game deck builder. It's very, very successful. One of the things you've got to avoid in games like that, oh, Dune Imperium, that's another one that has got deck building. These are all board <laughs> games, everyone. So, yeah. um, um, So, what have you done in Trials of Fire to avoid bloat of the deck? Now, bloating means that you get extra junk in there or you get, like, just cards that are kind of interesting but really don't work with the rest of the deck and that kind of thing. What have you done to get away from um, basically the player being 
suffering from analysis paralysis where they're staring at the screen going, well, I could do that, or I could do that, or, I could, you know, what have you done to stop that from happening too much? Um, I, uh, weird answer is, is kind of uh, nothing really. Um, mm. Like, <laughs> yep. One of the things, uh, like we have, we have lots of different ways you can you can kind of customize your loadout, customize how you go into combat. So, um, for anyone who hasn't played the game, your kind of deck is made up of sort of nine core cards, which are are based on your class, and then any any other cards you add on top of that are based on the equipment you have. So, it's, so as you say, if you're kind of familiar with deck builders, you don't always want the biggest deck. You want want something that's more efficient. So it's not. It's not a case of just sort of equipping every item you find. I mean, that can that can work on the on the on the sort of medium and lower difficulty levels. But when you kind of go to like the harder difficulty levels, where a lot of people are, are kind of super competitive, you really have to think about it, like every every piece of equipment you take, every level up, uh, kind of how how what you're getting sort of fits into your deck. Um, we actually we have some mechanics that uh, that kind of um, the fight against the the whole small deck issue because I think that's what kind of what I think one of the things about deck building as as you know is that generally you want a, a smaller deck as possible um, so you kind of you're, you're very much aware of what cards are coming up each turn uh, and your turns kind of become more predictable we didn't we didn't kind of want that though we wanted to make sure that um, you keep your deck size at, at a level where it's going to take sort of three or four or five turns to cycle through it so you're not sort of spamming the same tactics every turn um and again to really um to give player again choices so that yes you can make a super small deck there are drawbacks to it um you can make a big deck which has drawbacks to it as well but but not saying that one of these is the way to go um just letting players experiment and try different solutions like we have i think some uh, amazing runs. We see people with very small decks. Some people just with sort of very big uh, decks that are kind of, but you can, but are still focused on on sort of combos and synergies. Yeah, um, it's they're very they're very well designed because they they do really reflect on what's going on on the battlefield, and that's something I want to talk, ask you about now because positioning of the pieces. And mm-hmm. listeners, the in in Trials of Fire, the uh, the characters are represented by discs with their portraits on them, and it's very much a hexagonal layout, but it's beautifully rendered and lots of lighting and shadows. It's wonderful, and um, the positioning though of of those relative to other units, either a friendly or an enemy or both, are really integral to executing successful tactics or maneuvers, I should say, in Trials of Fire. How have you found integrating the card play and the tactical positioning? How have you found that? Because uh, granted, there's many other games that have done this and do this, but what what have you found to be quite a challenging thing to make sure that one uh, element doesn't favour the other or overwhelm the other? It's um, a good question. I mean, it's it's really a case of, of kind of designing uh, as... M- as much of the the card play as as feasible around positioning. So, for example, all the most of the um, the range attacks, for example, require line of sight. Uh, melee attacks get bonuses if you are able to surround the enemy. Um, magic attacks are often limited by kind of range or by a um, a specific area of effect shape. So, 
Um, it's really a case of kind of making sure that all the all the all the attacks, all the um, all the effects you can do are kind of made better by being in the right position by maneuvering your character. So it's not a case of there's a choice of maneuvering or fighting. Um, it's it's really the the the, the two. Um, really complement each other, which I think really comes from kind of designing how those how those cards work, how the different uh, effects work, uh, and making sure you've got a, an interesting environment to play in. Yeah, because that's the goal, isn't it? To set up your piece in such a way that the card that you know you want to play, you're not going to play it yet, but you're eventually going yeah. to, is going to be executed optimally, especially with casters. Um, I found, you know, the, the amount of times I'm like, can't do it yet because you'll just do friendly fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> you hurt one of the, you know, the, the, when, when I play Dungeons and Dragons, the house rule I have is that if someone's firing an arrow and they roll a one, they're yeah. going to hit a friendly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the rules in D&D, but I said, well, you fired an arrow, you rolled a one. What's going to happen? Something very, very bad. And so that, that to me, friendly fire is, you know, that's a great thing you've added to it as well. Mm. Like, well, you know, the, the mage can't selectively choose who it hurts with its, you know, its, its, its chaotic fire, necrotic spell. You know, anyone could get hit if you're going to get in the way. <laughs> yeah, we did actually have a, there was a very old version of the game where you could shoot your own people as well accidentally. Um, <laughs> that didn't didn't make it into the final game. No. <laughs> No, it works in D and D, but not so much. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair. Anyway, um, next question I've got is the overworld. I call it the overworld, uh, like you know, Total War games that have the overworld aspect. Yeah. So Trials of Fire has this, which I really loved. I loved the, the the representation of it. You marching through the world, and you get arrows pointing to where you might want to go, maybe just to finish the quest. I don't know. <laughs> and um but you know you were constantly i mean it's like uh, it's the classic oblivion aspect of oh look something shiny no no, no never mind uh, <laughs> and you go off and, and discover something and then find a side quest it's great but one of the things i found fascinating in trials of fire is that during that expedition when you're walking you're constantly the players constantly having to make difficult decisions okay to and they are difficult and you have to balance one, and one is sacrificing another for the other. And in many cases, they are not. It doesn't seem to be finely balanced in favour of the player. It's more finely balanced in favour of the environment they're in. What have what process have you undertaken to model what is essentially like a risk reward experience, and that you have to risk the potential of starving whilst also getting to a spot you're trying to get to or trying to do a thing. How have you found balancing that, making sure it's not frustrating? Um, I mean, that's actually as a, something that we've uh, we've kind of worked on a lot, particularly over um, over early access. I think we the kind of the system we started with um, was perhaps uh, less forgiving, um, uh, and a lot of people were starving to death, um, which isn't actually possible anymore. Um, but when the game first launched in early access, you could actually you could starve to death. Um, so a lot of that was was really based on uh, kind of player feedback, really trying to tune the the kind of punishing nature, um, letting giving players room to explore, but but putting in systems to constantly push you forward. Um, kind of as a as a roguelike game with permadeath, we don't we kind of don't, we don't want to let people dig their their own grave, so to speak. That sort of spend twelve hours exploring everything and then die at the first boss. 
Um, we kind of want to sort of keep you pushing you onto those challenges so that when you when you die, you've got you can start again without feeling like I've wasted um, hundreds of twelve hours of my time on the on the first uh, encounter. Um, but also to um, to give you, as you said, that kind of nice push pull of I can't. There, there is there are rewards out there for exploring, um, but I've got to kind of weigh that with the the kind of the food, the morale pressure that that's pushing you forwards. Mm. So I think the, the kind of the, the the secret to it is basically um, failing and failing and failing, getting lots of feedback from your community um, about <laughs> stuff they don't like, stuff they they find frustrating, uh, and really being responsive to that. Don't kind of feel precious um, on on kind of specific mechanics or or um, or systems. I think what you want to do is kind of just really keep that. The idea of what you want the player to feel like that kind of pressure, that push pull, rather than sort of specific mechanics. Like, for example, we we used to have starvation, um, which we don't have anymore, um, but we but we still kind of have that that kind of push pull between sort of too much exploration will will be bad for you in the end. Mm. I mean, it's it's dangerous out there. Ash is not a nice. Place. It is. It's <laughs> not a nice place. I mean, deserts are glass for pity's sake. Anyway, and that, I love that intro. So it's just really. And the art design is extraordinary. But um, there's one more game mechanic. And we've got one more question. I know, all good things. They do have to come to an end. And this is the last design question I have. And it's about resources. During combat, your cards are a kind of resource. Um, There's more of a card. They are actually something you need to trigger or expend or discard in order to do something. Um, certain cards have a cost to them, and that cost is uh, is a uh, willpower, and that mm-hmm. can be either earned by uh, a, a passive um, buff, if you like, that's constantly in play that you've played earlier on, or because of actions you've committed and certain things and combinations you've committed, or typically you just actually expending cards or just you know destroying them or sacrificing them, and. So in, in Charles of Fire, the, the player is almost forced to take away abilities that or not abilities, but actions that would could potentially do in favour of another party member uh, in the group. Although granted, you know, you you generally see them as a whole, as a system, like you all three characters you're in get or the number of characters you're you're using or controlling, they are a part of a system that you're using as a tool to overcome the enemy. Um how did this come about? How did this idea of of uh, t- using cards, the actual cards themselves, as a resource, how did that come about? Um, I mean, it was kind of again, a, a lot of these things, a bit of a, a, a roundabout process. Um, like I think, as you say, um, I, I actually play. I play quite a lot of um, tabletop board games as well, um, and, and kind of a bit of the inspiration came from games like. Um, like Mage Knight, um, if you play that, where your kind of your cards have multiple uses, you can kind of use them for their effect, rather for little attacks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of started with a system that was a lot more complicated. Um, like you could use your cards for all sorts of random stuff, and kind of really sort of boiled down to something a bit simpler, where your your cards are primarily just just for movement or resources, um, which I think works really well. It means we can give you we can give you more cards each turn, um, 
because we know that kind of your even though the, the, the your first action can might might feel overwhelming the more you sort of play your turn the the, the more your kind of uh, options decrease so so the turns kind of have quite a lot of thinking at the start and then you kind of you move through stuff and you get less and less options and and it, and it kind of speeds up um so i think it was i'll say how we got to this was was really sort of starting with this idea that your cards can have have multiple users so i think one thing that can be annoying in in some deck builders is if you pick a card that has no use that turn it's kind of like it feels like a waste it feels like uh it feels disappointing whereas in in trials of fire we always make sure that every card except maybe some of the weaknesses um you can use it to to either set yourself up in a better position or to to power up a, a better ability so you never kind of feel like you never feel like there's a dud card in your hand it's just like this is not the right time to play this but i can use it for for powering this up i can use it to to get me into a better position yeah i just found it really you're right that that little bit of reward of like you know what i don't really need that don't need another advanced card i'm up i'm up at the grill at the moment i'm good thanks let's just mm. toss that and give me something back rather than the trash cards that you get, they call them. You know, you don't need that. Oh, great. How much money did I get from that one? What can I use to buy with one? Nothing. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, that, that 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 sort of like when you've got the shop front and all that a lot of deck yeah. builders have, you're like, oh, I can buy a Oh, no, I can't because, I mean, it's only a one and nothing's for sale for one. So, you know, and that's really it's a wonderful thing that you've done there. This is like, you know, yes, it is destructive, but you're going to get something back from it. Uh, and I love the fact that even when you're not doing anything, like actually you can just add armor to the character. There you go. How about that? Mm. You know that that helps, doesn't it? You've, I mean, there's many a time when I've set myself up and go, okay, I can't really do anything more with these three cards ideally, but they're going to go. I mean, I can't just waste them. Oh, I know. Yeah. Let's just yeah. bung some armor on them. Brilliant. You know, just so yeah. it's not. It's very very efficient, and that was really what drew me more about Trials of Fire is how it's um, how the design of it. It's terribly efficient, but not to the point where um, you can just see the code sort of thing. You can't you can <laughs> see the numbers and the spreadsheets. It's one of the reasons I stopped playing World of Warcraft, because all I could see was the code. I could see the woman dressed in red, so to speak. <laughs> um, it's like I stopped playing it because I could just see the two spreadsheets fighting. It's just not fun. One of the big advantages of having you know a two-year early access period was... Now, thinking back to the way the game was when we entered early access in May of 2019 to where it is now, and it has changed so much. And all of that is due to community feedback, you know, the, the players smashing the systems that, that we've got in there and then telling us where, where it breaks, you know, where mm. the game falls apart and or, or falls over. And um, a lot of those systems that, that you've just referenced came online during early access directly in response to feedback from players and you know the the very very like insanely skilled trials of fire players who always play up at cataclysm 10 level whenever you ask them or whenever anyone on discord asks them for advice um tactical positioning you know positional play is always one of the things they say look you've really got to focus on on your positioning so being able to throw away a card that you don't need just to tweak a the position of one of your one of your heroes just slightly makes all the difference. So that I think the the integration of that willpower system, but also the the fact that every card is useful in some way 
with the premium on positional play being really, really critical. Like those two systems marry each other really well. And it's only until you either watch someone play at a very high level or you, you kind of invest enough time in the game to, to until that little dynamic clicks that I think the the kind of beauty between those two or the synergy between those systems becomes apparent. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you're right. It's just that when you realize the relationship, which is why I asked about it earlier, the relationship between the positioning and the cards and the abilities yeah. and all that stuff. It's, it's really, really important. It's not chess. That's a different beast. And I don't think you really mm. looked into chess because, which is a good thing because that's a, that's a very different concept. It's more patterns versus patterns. I don't think we've got that there. This is definitely a case of uh, manoeuvring and creating an opportunity which you can then exploit. The trouble is, yeah. so's the other side. I think that's kind of one of the advantages of kind of the the roguelike format against. Yeah. I mean, you might reference kind of World of Warcraft, um, uh, and again, I don't, I don't want to disparage that game because they have kind of so much to worry about in terms of long term balance. You've got people who's have have their their characters who've been like three well not three have been twenty years ten years uh, old they've been sort of grinding up through the levels um, and there's kind of there is a certain balance you need to maintain so that you can't you don't get overpowered you don't get underpowered you don't you don't feel like it's too um, too hard or too easy whereas in Trials of Fire we can because it's a it's kind of short form gameplay uh, we can have we can give you like really cool items earlier where you're kind of smashing through early fights um you might find a great combo that kind of takes you through the earliest part of the game quite quite easily um but it's always gonna it's gonna catch up with you in the end so we can kind of kind of have the experience doesn't have to be quite so kind of smoothly balanced it can be kind of a bit more spiky you can have some jumps in difficulty some sort of jumps in the player power um that i think works works well in that kind of um, two-hour, sort of two-three-hour gameplay session. Yeah, I, I that um, you're right. The I did find that that I was like, I was consciously aware. It's like that was that was a bad idea because how did I survive that? That's just <laughs> what are you doing? You just why are you plowing that furrow? It's just dumb. But it was a bad call, Ripley. It was a bad call. <laughs> bad Burke, These people are dead. All right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going back, so we? I thought you guys were still there. Yeah, we, we are still there. No? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, we, yeah, okay. We're, we're yeah. going to talk about that cat pretty soon, but... <laughs> who is ultimately the hero of all the Aliens films, but... Jonesy, yeah. Jonesy, yeah. Um, Charles of Fire, then, which is developed by What Boy Games. I have to ask the name of the company. Where does that come from? Well, it actually comes. It's it's named after my um, my son, bizarrely. Um, my son is is autistic, and one of the things he does, he still does, is he, he basically he has to ask about everything. He has to understand exactly how everything works. So, what what happens if this happens? What does this do? What does this oh. do? So, it's kind of we um, we started calling him basically as, as a, his little superhero name was was What Boy. Um, right. So it kind of yeah, that was kind of per, quite a personal story, but it kind of it stuck. Um, no, it's lovely. It's sort of it's double. There's double relevance as well. I mean, yeah. Adam and I have known each other for a long time, working at Rocksteady. But um, I, I have a son who has cerebral palsy. So when we started working together, the the common objectives that we have in our lives, you know, there's a lot of common ground between wanting to make games, but also having 
a lot of um, family pressures and and kind of quite unique challenges, both having sons with with additional needs. So there's a real kind of spirit between the two of us whenever there's hospital appointments or emergencies that we have to deal with. There's no questions from the other one. You know, who, whoever has to go just goes and the other yeah. one holds yeah. the fort and, and, and deals with whatever we yeah. need to deal with as a company. But mm. it also extends when we work with freelancers or contractors. You know, everyone has shit in their life to deal with. Yep. Everyone has difficulties and challenges, whether that's aging parents or financial trouble, whatever it might be. So so the kind of core of What Boy as a name really, it, it's it's more about the culture of empathy and sympathy that we have for one another and that we extend to anybody who collaborates with us because we've all got our own stuff going on. So we we always want to be in a position where if somebody needs our help, we're there for them, no questions asked. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's a laudable, laudable goal and one that many more people should pursue. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it feels like the right thing to do. Yes. Yes, Tiles of Fire by What Boy Games is out now. And I must get the platform right. I do believe it's Windows PC on Steam. And that's, that's correct, yes. That's, and uh, so, yes, um, you're more than welcome to come back on the show for whatever next you've got cooking. But it has been wonderful having you on the show. You've been fantastic guests, and as well as Jonesy in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for having us. It's, it's been great to chat. Yeah. Yeah, good no, fun. I'm glad to hear it. But uh, like I said, the uh, invitation is open to you for whatever next you've got cooking. But in the meantime, thank you very much. Thank Pleasure. you. Take Bye-bye. it easy. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Canaan Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Canaan Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canarince.com. Thank you.